No, it's not. Hey, let's play a game. Let's play a game. I'm going to play the game as what is best, okay? I'm going to give you two things, uh, two opposing things, and we're going to say which one is best, and you're just going to belt it out, okay? You ready? What is best, Apple or Android? Apple. I feel like, I feel like Apple people bully Android people. You ever like, if you've got an Android, you feel bullied, don't you? Am I right? <laughs> like, you get in a group text, and all of a sudden it goes green. You're like, oh, gosh, an Android person, all right? <laughs> which is best, Costco or Sam's Club? That was easy. Which is best, dogs or cats? Neither. (laughs) Uh, Which is best, DoorDash or going to the restaurant and eating? (laughs) This is funny. Which is best, God or you? Which is best, God or your money? God or your preferences? God or your freedoms? God are your securities? God God are your convenience? God God are your safety? God God are your significant other? God God are your spouse? God God are uh, a God or your kids? Oh, okay, man, you guys, all right. Is God committed to giving you ultimately what is best? Okay. God is committed to staying God in our lives because ultimately that is what is best for us. That's how we as humans flourish and that's how we operate. Do you believe that? Okay. What if God were to test you on that? Are you okay with it? Let's, let's see. Let's see. Hey, we're, we're continuing our series called By Faith. We've been walking through the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And basically, we've been looking at uh, Hebrews 11. It's been really drawing us back to the Old Testament. We've been kind of collecting these dots and uh, assembling these dots. Where it's making this beautiful picture of Jesus. And ultimately, it's going to show us how to live by faith. And so we started this a few weeks ago, kind of laid the foundation. I got COVID a couple weeks ago. And so Tim stepped in like on Sunday morning and preached for me, which was phenomenal. Thank, thank God for him. And then Brandon, yeah, you can give him applause. And then um, last week, Brandon was scheduled to preach, and so he preached ahead of this text. And so I already wrote this message. I'm like, I put the time in to write this message. I'm preaching this message. So now we're going, it's not, it's not self-indulging. We're just going back because I, I really think this is important. And so we're going to be in Hebrews 11 today. Uh, and today we're going to continue with Abraham and be introduced to his son Isaac, which we got a little bit of that last week. Uh, and in this story, we're going to see at what length God is committed to staying the best in our lives or first in our lives. And we're going to see how uh, he tested Abraham with what could have been potentially his first and greatest love, which would, I think, been his son maybe. But knowing this, God is going to test you from time to time. And if you are a Christian in here, God's tests are not pass and fail. They are pass and retake. You ever lived that out in life? It's like, oh, I failed. I guess I'm out. Nope. God's going to give it to you again. And that's what's going to happen. So if you've got a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, Hebrews 11, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from it. And so we have them out at Center Point, and we have them here as well in English and Spanish. And then we have version on your phone. You can download that, click events, and uh, all the fun Grace Point Church stuff will pop up. And then just futuristically, we're getting ready to do something really fun with Bibles here, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to leave it that with you. So it's coming up in a few weeks. Super excited about it. Now, Hebrews 11, are you there? As a reminder, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage encourage them and warn them to not walk away from Jesus. They were Jewish converts. 
and they uh, were under a lot of testing and a lot of trials. It would be a great temptation for them to walk away from Jesus. And the author is trying to say, hey, don't walk away from Jesus, but trust him more and more through your temptation, testing, and trials and all that. And so we're going to pick up in Hebrews eleven seventeen, and it goes a little like this. By faith, and that's been the key phrase the writer's been saying over and over, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, I want you to hang on to that, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, just a little bit to remember, remember God had promised Abraham a son through Sarah, and from the vantage point of the writers and art as well, we know that God commanded Abel to offer up Isaac. What does that mean? sacrifice him. What does that mean? To kill him. Okay. This seems like it would end up voiding God's promise to make Abraham a great nation if he kills the son that this promise is going to go through. So this is a bit of a head-scratcher event. But before we even get into the story, which is in Genesis 22, and we'll get there in just a moment, we have to deal with this, this shock to our system that God is telling one of his servants to kill his son, his one and only son. God tested Abraham, and this test was to kill his son. Now, if you know a little bit of Abraham's story, you would think circumcision would have been the biggest test in his life, because that was a brand new thing. You're like, God said, do what? And now, that's funny. I don't know why. (laughs) That's so funny. But now it's like, no, you're going to kill your son. Now, question. Don't Don't answer out loud too quickly. Maybe this might be something to ponder, but would it be an act of evil for Abraham to kill Isaac. Don't answer out loud. Just think about that. Is God's test actually tempting Abraham to sin? Well, I think we need to call in some backup on this to really help us out. What's going on with testing and tempting and all that? So our backup is going to be the book of James. So if you got, uh, you got your Bible, go to the book of James, James chapter 1. We need to do a little investigative uh, work there. We're going to start in verse 12 uh, to, to maybe help us with this. James 1.12 says this, blessed or happy, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Um, hold on to the word trial there because it's very important. Trial, for when he has stood the test, test and trial, you see that right in the same set, sentence, when he stood the, the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, James knows a test can be taken one of two ways. The first way it can be test, seen as like a test or a trial that is, uh, that is caused for us to turn to a deeper relationship and trusting with God. Make sense? A test is for you to trust God more. The other way a test can be looked at is to see something that's ultimately bad or senseless or God failing, at a, failing us of some sense or something that is to be blamed upon God and used upon sin. Some people may look at that and say, you know what? God is testing me and he's tempting me to sin. Can we say things like that? Well, if we keep reading the scripture, verse 13 tells us. James makes it very clear what we can do and not do. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. So, so far we've seen uh, trial, test, and tempted. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So in the nutshell is this, God will not single out anyone for some impossible task that they are bound to fail that will lead them into some type of sin and evil. But God does test his people. You believe that, right? 
There's a scene in the Old Testament with God's people later on after Abraham called uh, the Israelites. And the Israelites were out in the wilderness, and God was going to provide for them. And he provides for them food in the wilderness. You know what that food was called? And manna means what is it? They just, they, they just called it, what is it? Every day they had, what is it? Uh, anyway, they had manna. And the, the rule was God gave them a command of like, hey, just get enough manna for the day. Don't save any up for later on. Why did God do that? Well, God was testing them to see if they would trust him day to day with their daily bread. But what did the people of God do? They stored it up. And what happened to the manna? It rotted. The Bible says it like rotted and got worms, got all gross. And so when you start looking and contrasting Abraham, which spoiler alert, Abraham and Isaac, like Abraham passed the test, the test and was faithful. But you see Israel right there, they failed the test and they, they fell into sin. It revealed their lack of faith. Okay, makes sense? Now, we have another big question to ask, answer then. Do God's tests become temptation at some point? Don't answer. Does God's test become temptation at some point? And the answer is no and yes, maybe. The way God designed tests were to provide opportunities to grow our faith muscle so we could endure to the end. Now, remember... God is sovereign. He knows all things, and God is in control of all things. He knows that some will face test as test, and he knows some will face temptation as temptation. So the same event could happen to the two different people. One will have the perspective of it is a test, and some will have the perspective of it is temptation. Now, notice back in James 1, 12 and 13. He uses those three words I told you to hang on to, test, trial, and temptation. Test, trial, and temptation in the New Testament Greek, it's originally written in Greek, are all the same word. Test, trial, and temptation, all the same word. The context determines what James has in mind. A test that lets people prove their faith or a temptation that leads them to sin. Now we have a whole other question we have to ask. If the same event allowed by God can be a test or a temptation, does God lead people into temptation to sin? Don't answer. I'll answer for you. No. God does not lead us into temptation to sin. If a test becomes temptation, it's because of us and not because of God. Now, you may be saying, well, Ty, how do you know that? You, you ever read the Bible and not understand it? You, you, know what you, should, you know what you should do when you don't understand the Bible? Keep reading. Look at verse 15 of James 1. But each person is, now here's the word, tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? It's not, not when he's lured and enticed by God himself, no, by his own desires. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. So our desires are not intrinsically evil in and of themselves, but they can be easily turned to evil. I mean, if you think about what we typically do when a test comes our way, and we turn it into temptation. Uh, you remember the story of in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were there and they had, you know, everything was perfect and they had like one, one command, basically don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of evil, good and evil. You remember that, right? And then the enemy comes along and like that was almost like a test that they failed. What happened when Adam and Eve failed the test of God? What did they do? They started blaming. Remember that? Like, God, if you wouldn't give me this woman, and if there wasn't this snake here, and like this, this whole big blame game. We do the same thing, don't we? When a test comes our way and we fail, we just end up going into temptation and sinning and then blaming everyone else, don't we? 
Well, if that person didn't look so good, I wouldn't look at him. If the military was a little bit more generous, I wouldn't take home those office supplies. If my job would engage me more, then I wouldn't waste so much time on the computer and basically stealing time from them. Or like if, if I weren't so overworked, I'd come home with a little bit more energy to give to my family. Or, you know, if my friends weren't so gossipy, I wouldn't always be talking about that other person all the time. Or if Krispy Kreme didn't have that big, red, flashing, hot and ready sign on, I wouldn't stop by there and eat all those donuts. Blame, 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 blame. That's what we do, right? We, we, just, we just blame. But who's to blame when it comes to temptation? Us. James is saying, don't you put that on God, Ricky Bobby, is what he's saying right there. No, it, 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 it is our, it says our own sinful desires. Don't blame God on, on temptation and sin. Let me illustrate like this. It's like when you take a test at school. You ever taken a test at school? Some of us like, it's been 50 years. Like, it's like, you ever you remember that? When you take a test at school, those are things that happen. You take a test in school, and the reason why you take a test at school is to find out what you have learned, to find out what's inside of you. The test is the vehicle to do that. It's not the cause. Make sense? So let's say you have a test, and you choose not to study. I've heard some people do that. You choose not to study. If you don't study, you could possibly fail. Now, imagine if you did fail because you didn't study. Or no, let's, let's do it like this. Imagine you decide you're not going to study and you're so like so much pressure on the inside. You know what? Instead of studying, I just think I'll go there and cheat. Okay. And you go take your test and you cheat on the test. And guess what happened? You got busted. And then you're sitting in the principal's office or the dean's office, and you said, well, you know what? If that professor didn't give me that test, then I wouldn't have cheated. No. <laughs> the test was just the vehicle to prove what's inside of you. Don't blame that on the test or the professor. It's on you for not studying. So what does that mean? That means we don't need to go to Mr. Netflix and blame them for our lack of sleep because that little play next episode bar fills up really quick and then our, the episode already starts. You're like, well, daddy didn't raise no quitter, so I'm going to keep watching this. <laughs> don't, don't blame Mr. Netflix for that. <laughs> it's so true. It gets us all. It, it does get us all. It does. See, when tests come, we are tempted to not trust God. God. And what we are essentially saying when those tests comes, we're saying, whatever it is that I'm tempted to do to, to turn away from God and to do something else, that becomes a higher priority or that becomes my best and God is not my best. Mirosolf Wolf, greatest name ever, said this, the main temptation is not to reject God outright, but to embrace God as something secondary and use God as an instrument for our own ends. Is that God takes the back seat. When testing comes and we turn it into temptation, that's what we are doing. Now, does that make sense? Testing, temptation, trials? Do you kind of have a bearing on that right now? I mean, I can take another 20 minutes and keep at this if you want to. All right, let's move on. So from that, I want to see how Abraham handled this test of God. So now go to Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 22. Verse 1. Love that sound. Verse 1. Not my voice, the Bible turning. <laughs> After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he says, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God now is testing Abraham. Will Abraham obey or not? Quick review, quick review. Do you remember where Abraham was from originally? Ur? Remember Ur? You are? And remember what they found in the temples of Ur? Sacrificed human remains. So remember that Abraham, Abram, before he was called by God, was a part of that cultic pagan worship. So this would be familiar to him. He would like, oh, I know what this is. Okay. Nonetheless, remember, this is his boy. This is his son right here. And this was the son that the promise was supposed to go through. So what's going what's to happen if God kills the promise? Well, let's keep going. Let's see what Abraham does. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What's, what's Abraham doing right there? He's resolved. God said it. I'm going to do it. Now, let's, let's, let's play with this for just a second. It's as if in that moment, Isaac is already dead. Physically, he's still alive, right? But in Abraham's mind, because of Abraham's obedience, obedience Isaac is as good as dead. Even when you look at Hebrews later on, the, the Hebrews 11 we're looking at, the way the language works, it's in his mind. For Abraham, it's resolved. Isaac's gone, okay? That, that matters. Verse four, on the third day, now I don't want to be too playful with this, but there are some huge hints right there. Remember, Isaac is as good as dead for three days, okay? Just keep that in mind. It gets super obvious in just a moment. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And so verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, the way this is originally written in the Hebrew, it's written as if this. Isaac and I are going to go over here, and then Isaac and I will come back. He's already resolved that he's going to obey the Lord, but, he, but there must be something in his mind that the Lord's going to do. Got it? But he is saying to them, we will return together. That's what he's saying, essentially. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son. I mean, this is just getting blatantly obvious now, isn't it? It looks like it's prophetically telling of something that will happen years and years and years down the road of some, some wood being laid upon another son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they both went with them together. And so Isaac is about to be sacrificed. He's going to die. He put the wood on there, prophetically showing to the future. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? <laughs> the clue phone was ringing and Isaiah, or Isaac was not picking it up. It's like, wait a minute, Where, where's the lamb? Like, it feels like at this moment, he doesn't realize that he's the one, that he's the sacrifice. It's interesting, he has this great trust in his father, like his, his earthly father, Abraham, right there. But he says, where is the lamb? I love that question. Where is the lamb? Verse eight, Abraham said, don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this. God will provide for himself, period. Don't forget that. God will provide for himself the lamb. What God requires, God will provide. Keep that in your mind for the rest of your days. What God requires, God will provide. That'll do you well. God's, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, so they're both one of them together. And so God, he's, Abraham believed that, that, that God was going to provide a lamb. Verse 9. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. His son, I would only assume, only imagine, stood there with his hands clasped and allowed his dad to tie him up, tie his ankles together, and lay him down on the wood. Now, mind you, how old is Abraham at this point? Just, just, you can just say old. Like, he's like over 100 years old. He is old. I mean, old. We believe that Isaac is probably a teenager. Just by physical strength, Isaac could have overtaken his father. Isaac could have ran away from his father, but he doesn't. It's interesting that so much trust he has in his father, or he has seen his father's trust and obedience in God's, and he's just like, okay, I'm in. And it says he, he, he was bound. I just think that's so interesting. I can, I can only imagine if my dad takes me hunting as a kid. I'm like, hey, son, we'll tie you up. We're going to put you on that altar. And here's a knife. Like, nope, I'm out of here. Not happening. You did? Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Man. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Test passed. Just passed the test. Could you imagine the relief in Abraham? Could you imagine the relief in Isaac? Could you imagine how awkward it gets after that? Could you imagine like five or ten years down the road, like, hey, Dad, you remember that time you took me up to that mountain and was going to stab me? <laughs> Crazy times, right? <laughs> you imagine? I mean, like, Abraham's a real dad. Isaac's a real son. I mean, he loved him. His name, Isaac, meant laughter. And it's because of Sarah laughing because they didn't believe that God could do such an outlandish thing of birth a child through two old people like that. But I could only imagine that Isaac has brought them great joy and laughter throughout their life, and he was called to, to murder, to kill him. And yet he says, no. I could only imagine Abraham squirming a little bit on this situation, couldn't you? He's a real guy. He's a real human. Miguel de Unamuno said it like this. I love the way he says this. He says, those who believe that they believe in God, but without passion in their hearts, without anguish in their mind, without uncertainty, I bet he had some uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the God idea, not God himself. God's tests are intended to make you squirm a little bit. It's okay. Some of us think, no, I've got to be like, you know, everything's got to be fine, and I can just tell you, like, no, it's okay to be like, I don't know about this kind of deal. It's okay. See, God intervened in this story. Isn't it interesting, though, that God intervened at the right time? He wasn't too early. Definitely wasn't too late. That would have been bad. When it comes to God's test, we need to follow through and believe that God will intervene at the right time during test. That's the hardest part, I think, about temptation, isn't it, or about test. Is waiting because we want instant relief. We, if we're under some kind of trial, under some kind of test, under some kind of temptation, typically what leads us into sin is we eject too early. When God's telling us to hold fast, when God's saying, you keep waiting upon me. Now, let's think through this. How could Abraham go through this? And why did he tell his servants that they would both come back to them? Like, how did he go through with like, I'm, I'm going to do this? And why was he so sure that he told his servants, hey, both of us will be back. Fast forward now to Hebrews 11. Let's go back there, verse 19. We find out what his faith was in. It says, he considered that God was able even to raise from him from the dead, being Isaac, 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Remember I said when, when Abraham set out, it was basically like Isaac was dead, and then three days later, and he's saying figuratively, figuratively he did get his son back because in that moment he was resolved of like, I'm going to follow God no matter what. Remember that? He believed that God was able to bring him back to life. The, the word right there considered, it, it means to calculate or compute. I love Abraham's faith. It is a calculated faith. We do not have a blind faith, but we have a calculated or computed faith. What, what, was he, what was he calculating? I would only assume that Abraham was looking back to remember all that God had provided in his life. If God has provided all that and God has shown up so many times and God has fulfilled his promises, then why would God do something different now? It was a calculated trust. I could only imagine that Abraham thought, if God can bring life from these two old people, surely he can bring life from a sacrificed son. I think that's pointing us to something as well. But I think there's another part that Abraham was looking back on too. Um, There was this thing called the covenant that God struck with Abraham. It's in Genesis 15. You don't have to go there. I can tell that. But there was this covenant that God struck with Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your, your, your ancestors, your children, as numbers as sand uh, on, the, on the shores or as numbers as stars in the sky. And Abraham asked him this question. He's like, how are you going to do that? How can I believe that? And God calls him on it. God says, you know what? Go get a heifer, which is a cow. Go get a heifer. Go get a ram. Uh, go get a goat. Go get a couple of birds. And we're going to take, and you take the, the heifer, and the goat and the ram, and you're going to cut it in half and separate them and make a little pathway in between them, right? You got a picture of that in your mind? Now, why is God doing this? Because back in that time period, that's how you would strike a covenant with one another. Let's say there was two families or two nations, and they wanted to form some kind of peace treaty or some kind of agreement with one another. They would go, and they would hammer out all the terms together, and then when all the terms were decided, they would come together, grab an animal, split it completely in half, separate it, and then each person, each leader of each party or each nation would walk in between the two animals. Why? Because they're signifying, if I default on my promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Make sense? And what if we did that nowadays? Like, I would never get out of my T-Mobile contract. Like, all right, I'm like, I'm in. Good Lord. And so... God does this with Abraham, but he does something unbelievable. God splits, or Abraham splits the animals, but only God walks in between them. Meaning this, don't miss this. The covenant with God was contingent and, and hanging only on God, not on Abraham. There were no conditions to Abraham at all, none at all. It was all up to God, and God was basically saying, I will keep my promises, or may what happened to these animals happen to me. God is the covenant keeper. It was easy, I think, or it was easier for Abraham to trust God because he had that relationship with God and knew that that God is the one holding the covenant, knowing God is the one that keeps his promises. But here's the thing about God you have to understand. And when you look at Abraham's story, you see this. God will not only call you to give up your past, like he did with Abraham and his life in Ur and his pagan worshiping there. But God will also require you to submit your future. I mean, think about Abraham. His future was what? Isaac. And he had to surrender and submit. How could he do that? 
How could Abraham give up something so precious like his son? Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he received him back. God is a God who raises dead things and brings them back to life. That is the God we serve. He is the God of resurrection. Abraham, I don't think, even knew about resurrection at the time, but yet he believed in the resurrection. He believed. He trusted that if I obey God, God would keep his promise and Isaac would come back home. That's what he believed. See, I I want you to hear this. It was not Abraham's responsibility to keep God's promise on his behalf. It was not Abraham's responsibility to keep God's promise on the behalf of God. Who was going to provide the lamb? What did he tell Isaac? God will. It's God's responsibility to keep his own promise. Do you understand that? We don't have to keep God's promises. God is the one who made the covenant with us. He is the one who will keep his promises. It's his, it's his duty. It's his responsibility. It's his way to fulfill all of his promises. And God will. Our responsibility is to do what? Trust and obey. Got to do the rest. I, I want to finish this out. And I want you to be reminded that God keeps his word. You can trust God. Look at, look at Genesis twenty two thirteen. Go back to that. I want to finish that one out. I got time. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was what? A ram caught in the thicket by horns. That's convenient, isn't it? No. God sovereignly, before the foundation of the world, I believe, had planned that out. Caught in the thickets by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so right there, we start seeing this idea of uh, a, a sacrifice in our place, something taking our place right here. And we believe that God placed that there. Let me, let me finish it out, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And watch what he says. And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now, some of you are probably uh, confused a little bit. What about Ishmael? Ishmael was sent off. And so what the idea is that Isaac is his one and only son at that point, just in case. Uh, And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Just side note, do you guys realize this? Thousands of years later, we are receiving the blessings of Abraham's obedience. Don't think your obedience to God is a trifle thing. It is an eternal thing. It is passed on for sure. Verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, just like he said he would. And when they arose, they went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. So I want to do two things to round this out. Number one. Did you guys see all the Jesus connection there? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Abraham was called to give his one and only son, in which there was a sacrifice in his place. But God, the Father, will ultimately and did give his one and only son, and his name is Jesus. Isaac was as good as dead, and they traveled for three days there. And then when God provided that ram, that, that he was back to life somewhat again, figuratively speaking, as the scripture says. And yet Jesus traveled three days through death and actually physically came back to life. Did you see that in there as well? Or when, when uh, Abraham put the wood on the back of Isaac, and there's a signifying that like you're a condemned dead man. And yet we fast forward to Jesus and the cross 
was laid on his back as a condemned and dead man on our behalf. Did you, did you see that as well? And then the ram and the caught in the thicket, we see a substitute in the place of Isaac, and then we see that Jesus would be the substitute in our place. I mean, this, this is beautiful, right? This is thousands of years before Jesus would come to earth. We see this beautiful picture, everything pointing to Jesus. Peter Lewis said this, and I thought it was really good. He says, the faith of Abraham may, be, may inspire us, but it is the faith of Jesus that saves us. The son who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. There is no atonement on Moriah, the Abraham and Isaac situation, but on Golgotha, that would be where Jesus goes to the cross, there is a once for all and perfect sacrifice for sin. It was what was done there that saves Abraham and Isaac and you and me. Love that. So this whole story just connects to Jesus and magnifies Jesus and makes us want to give glory to Jesus and love Jesus. Second thing I want to do is, how do I apply this to my life? Like, what are the... What are the implications of Abraham and Isaac to me? Well, keep in mind, the author of Hebrews is showing his audience, which were Jewish people who converted to Christianity, to not walk away from their faith because of the persecution that they were uh, under. And uh, the, the idea was that the Jewish people would want to go, the Jewish converts would want to go back to Father Abraham. And, and what the author here is like, great, go back to Father Abraham, because Father Abraham is just pointing to who? Oh, you missed your cue, sorry. Father Abraham was just pointing to who? <laughs> there you go, you got it. Um, so, but in all that, because of that, I have one point for us all, one application point. Are you ready? You might want to write it down. Number one, one and done. God will test you. He will. And now, some of you are sitting there saying like, whoo, thank God, because he'll never give me more than I can handle. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. There's a little bit of a caveat to that. And where, where does that, there's a kind of a, people say, well, God will never give you any more than the handle. Well, you got to understand that in the right context. When you go to 1 Corinthians 10, where that kind of idea comes from, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. It says, no temptation, remember temptation, trial, and uh, testing are all the same. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now watch the rest of this. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, I want you to keep this in mind for the rest of your life. I'm getting ready to tell you something. I want you to hear this. God will provide for you during tests, trials, and temptation. God always provides an opportunity for us to obey when we are tempted. Always. Some of you are like, no, 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 this is a, it's a lose-lose situation. No, 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 no. This text is telling me that God always provides an opportunity for us to be obedient to him in any kinds of temptation, that we can endure it without sin. He gives us an opportunity for our faith to live by faith in those temptation moments. So when you are tempted, be reminded of this verse of like, well, God will never give me any more than I can handle. Just keep talking though. Keep saying he'll never give me any more than I can handle. However, he will give me an opportunity to obey him during all this. Don't miss that. How do I know Look at the story of Abraham and Isaac. That's how I know. Abraham was obedient to God. God faithfully provided. Just be faithful and obedient and leave the results to God. Why did Abraham, why was Abraham tested like this? You ever wondered that? I'm going to speculate. I might be wrong. I'm going to speculate. Perhaps, maybe, the text doesn't say this, but it's speculation. Like, why did God tempt him with Isaac? Maybe it's because Isaac 
had kind of moved up to the top in Abraham's heart. You know, he's really old, couldn't have kids for a long time, and now he has this joyful son named Isaac, which means laughter. And perhaps, maybe, maybe, just maybe, speculation, maybe, maybe his love for Isaac grew a little too much, and it kind of surpassed his love for God. I mean, the text doesn't say that, but maybe. That's why at the beginning I asked you, which is best? Remember when I asked you that, which is best, you or God? I said, God. I mean, I asked you, which is best, you, God or your finances, or God or your security, or God or your comfort? Remember I said, which is best, God or your spouse? And God are your kids. And you were pretty like, yeah, God, all the way. But is that true? Because God is always, always what is best for us. God being pr- the number one priority of our life is always what's best for us because that's how we flourish. That's how we operate as humans. See, for some of you right now, right now, you are under the test of God, aren't you? Give me a little nod if you're like, right now God is testing me. Yeah. And you know, if you're obedient to this test or you're obedient to this call, something is going to get sacrificed in your life probably. You know this. Something may die. Something may, ha- may have to take a back seat in your life. Something may have to change in your life if you obey God. And it may make you unhappy. And it definitely is going to make you feel uncomfortable. And it's definitely making you feel out of control, and that's why you hate it so much right now. And you have this dread of missing out. If you gave up this thing or you did whatever God told you to do, it's going to make you feel like you're missing out. And it's making you feel, if I could be honest with you, a little bit miserable, isn't it? Because that's how it works sometimes. And then you start reading God's Word. You're like, God, I need answers to all this. And you come across Romans 8, 28, and it says something like this. And like, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And those who are called according to His purpose, and you're like, okay, whatever, whatever it's supposed to be, it's going to work out for good. But still, nonetheless, you're like, I don't know how God can make this turn out good because it's going to make me so unhappy or it's going to change my life so drastically. It's going to do something. But then we have to remember the words of Jesus. Jesus say in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or let me just paraphrase it. If you love me, just obey. Just, just obey. That's what he's saying right there. The question is, will you obey God no matter what? No matter what he calls? Will you always put him as the priority in your life, no matter what it costs you? Will you always obey God? Will you pass the test with obedience and faith and trust in him? What, what if he calls you to stay in that marriage? Will you live by faith and obey him and trust him? What if he calls you to stay single? For some of you, you think staying single is like a destiny to you. Newsflash, did you know Jesus was single? Never had sex. He did okay. I read about him. He did all right. He did. What if he's calling you to stay in the city? I know, I know some of you, you hate Las Vegas. You're like, I just can't wait to get my orders and get out of here. I can't wait to move on. I just want to get my family. What if God called you to stay here because you know Christ here and like 90% of Las Vegas doesn't know Christ. And so you could be a light to a very dark place and you could have your family here and start a whole generations of Christians here. What if God would, will you, will you live by faith and obey? What if he's calling you to stay in your job that you hate so much? What if he's calling you to leave your job? He's called you into something else, and you know it, and you're supposed to take a step of faith. Will you, will you trust and o- obey him? What if he's calling you to really connect here to Grace Point Church and not just be an attender, but actually, you know what? This is, this is my home. This is my family where I love, and I give, and I serve, and I relate. And I, like, what if you're called to that? Will you trust 
and obey. What if, what if God calls you to speak up about Jesus in your workplace, in your classroom, at that cubicle, in your neighborhood, with those moms group or wherever you're at? What if God calls you to talk about Jesus some? Will you trust or will you obey? What if God is calling you to put down that sinful habit, that thing, you know that thing, whatever that thing is, and like that thing's just kind of been like a stray dog that you can't get rid of. You fed it once and like it's always there. What if God's calling you to take it out back and shoot it? Not your dog. The sin. Sin. Will you trust and obey that God can be better than that? What if God's calling you to confront a person? Like they're in sin, like something's going on in life and you're, you're, you can be that moment of truth with them. You can be loving and kind and gracious and you've been avoiding it like the play, but God's calling you to go to them and tell them. But I might lose the relationship. But do you trust God? What if he's calling you to be a leader, a missionary, a deacon, a pastor, a church planner? What if he's calling you to do that? Will you, will you trust and obey? What if he's calling you to re, reprioritize your life? What if you were to step back and look at your life and say, you know what, I think my spouse is my God, a little bit higher than God. I think my children, dare I say, a little bit higher than God. I think my job, I think my money, I think my status, my popularity, my safety, whatever that is, to where we need to reprioritize our life. And God, you need to be number one in my life. You need to be everything I'm about. Will, will you trust and obey? What if God is calling you to himself today? That you are just supposed to trust Jesus. You walked in here, you say, hey, I'm not a Christian. What if God's calling you to him? I, and you're like, I can't, I can't be a Christian. Like, I just know how Christians are. And I heard the news. They talk about Christians. Like, I don't want to be a Christian. What if God's calling you to trust, to trust Christ today, to be a Christian? What if God's calling you to be baptized today? Like, you've never been baptized. You have trusted Jesus. You've not. Like, what if God is calling you to that today? Will you, will you trust and obey God? Will you show, will you prove out that you love God more than anything else in this world? Because I think that's what Abraham was showing us. See, as we see it, the prospect of doing something that God is calling to may be scary. It may initially feel terrible. It may be costly. But isn't that what it was for Abraham as well? See, does God love you? Does God keep his promises? And can you trust him? That's the question I think we have to ask. Abraham's taught us anything. He's taught us this. The God who tests is also the God who provides. Whatever test he has for you or has you in right now, be reminded, God who tests is, is the same God who provides and his promises good. Here's what I want to do. I want to give us just a moment just to be silent. Some of us, like, we have no silence in our life whatsoever. But a moment to turn everything off, shut our Bibles. and What if you were just close your eyes and sit right there and say, God, what are you calling me to? What test are you testing my faith out in right now? Just, just take a moment and do that. Be real quiet. And then just say right where you're at, just say, God, I, I will be obedient. I will trust you in that. Just right where you sit. Let's just have a little bit of silence. I'll bring us out in a moment in prayer, and then we're going to baptize some people.
God, your tests are there to show us over and over that you are the provider. Not once will you fail to provide for us in the way that you see fit, which is always good, right, and perfect. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are under test. God, may they, as your word says, withstand the test. God, may they see you as best. May they trust you, obey you, leave you with the results. And as we do that, God, would you grow our our faith in you? We would be dependent upon you and trust you in all ways. And may we have our eye to the future as well, knowing that all your promises may not be fulfilled now, but one day, Christ, when you return, they will. Empower us. Guide us to live in that right now. And may it be good for us. May it increase our joy and our love and our desire for you, Jesus. May it be a a weapon against the enemy to shut his mouth. May it be good for the world around us. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.